The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, from um, time to time, I uh, get to do weddings, and sometimes they come in seasons, and like I'll do two or three at a time, and... um, I, was, uh, I just saw a couple this week. Uh, some of you in this room, I've done your wedding. And uh, I got cards from some of you that I've done your wedding, and they're from wet, wedding photos, and uh, I love that. And the sweet parts about that are, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding or, or you're wedding yourself and you remember it, um, that there's these uh, courses in there where you have, like, rehearsal, rehearsal dinner, you know, like this, th- and then the next day is, like, full of what's going on, and then you have the wedding and reception, those kind of things. But one of my favorite moments is the rehearsal dinner, because at the rehearsal dinner, you know, after the rehearsal and people get in place and all that, you get this opportunity where, and I usually, you know, I, I as somebody who's efficient, I'll usually speak a lot at the rehearsal, and then I'm just really quiet at the rehearsal dinner. I, don't, I just want to observe. I really enjoy receiving and hearing, and, 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 and what happens at a rehearsal dinner often? Well, the couple is usually celebrated, and you, know, you have people that stand up, and they have um, a million different stories from a di- million different walks of life. You'll have uh, the current roommate or somebody from college or a couple that walked with them and knew them or um, a parent or an uncle or even a niece or a nephew or a sibling. But what's cool about that to me is that in that moment, you have people from all strands of time, all stories from all throughout that are building to this one moment of that person's character in that. And it's almost like this, and I don't know if you ever thought of it this way, and this is what I think is kind of cool about it. You're actually taking a moment to brush up against the eternal. You're brushing up against a moment where you're out of time. Time almost doesn't even matter because all these people from a million different places and a million different stories are talking about this one or two people. And they're really sharing about it doesn't matter about time in that moment. They're brushing you, you're bringing you in, they're ushering you in to an eternal moment where you hear about that person and their character and their life. Uh, David Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in it, he talks about a couple things, kind of the big things. He talks about what are called eulogy uh, virtues versus resume virtues. And the big thing he, he's highlighting there is that in your eulogy, when, when, you, when, you, when you die, when you pass away, and you want, what do you want people to say about you? What are the things they want to, you know, you know, it doesn't matter. In that moment, what are you wanting, what kind of character are you wanting them to build? Because different than resume virtues of what we want to put forward, that we hope everybody likes us, or we're getting that job, or whatever it is, we want people to think we're so great. What's so different about those? What we hope in the eulogy virtues is the fact that, that we're known no matter when it is across time, that our character stands. Don't we want that? You know, we've been looking at um, this Advent season in one verse from the book of Isaiah. <laughs> one verse. And you know, we've brought in a couple supported verses. But what's unusual about it, we've been slowing way down looking at four names that have been attributed to the Messiah. 
the Messiah that Israel was hoping to come and rescue them. They didn't know who it was going to be at the time. But Isaiah is talking about the mess that Israel is dealing with, their internal and external struggles and who they are. And yet there's going to be a Messiah who comes who bears four names that show this is the one who's going to rescue. And there are such powerful names, so strong that it's really hard to attribute them to any human being. In fact, commentators say this is, this is the quote, and you've heard me say, that this is an invincible figure who strides along the world stage. I love that. This can't be just some random person or just another uh, normal king that comes in. It has to be someone greater, grander, who can bear the weight of this, an invincible figure who strides along the world stage. And the first few names we've seen, wonderful counselor or mighty God, attribute to specific things in their time. But we're going to look today at what's called the everlasting father. And when I read this passage to you, you're going to hear some of that. And what they're looking at when they hear everlasting father, and when they hear these names that they're specifically attributed to an individual whose character and quality is going to come in the time that they need as they internally are struggling with idolatry. And they're struggling with worship of, okay, God's great, but I really, all the other things in front of me really kind of take precedent. I kind of worship kind of my issues, my my circumstances a lot more than I really worship God. Sound familiar? And they're also struggling with an external fear. There's a giant nation called Assyria who is coming, who is looming, ready to take over, and they will. And they're working hard at trying to bring any sort of treaty, any sort of people, any sort of allies, even their smaller enemies together to try and face that. Who can match that? It is going to be the everlasting Father. It is going to be the mighty God. It is going to be the wonderful counselor. It is going to be the Prince of Peace. So let me read for you from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and then we're going to read a little bit from Psalm 103, verses 11 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Psalm 103, 11 starts this way. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness is with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
We're going to break this down into two parts, just as we have um, pretty much every name we've looked at as we slow way down. We're going to look at Father. What does the name Father mean? And what does the description of everlasting go with it? So Father and everlasting. And as we've continued to look at the book of Isaiah, as I mentioned, it's a prophetic book, and it's been written over decades. Uh, Not only decades of time, but we also see a number of kings involved. Uh, Good kings, bad kings, it's been described, if you can put them in that category, kings that have failed and kings that have kind of succeeded and yet haven't held held it true. But as they're facing this superpower of Syria, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, are trying to figure out how do we survive? How do we do this? What does this look like for us? Because they're struggling, as I said, not only internally, but externally. And in the past, they've had mighty kings. They've had one monarch, such as one like David, maybe that name you've heard before, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. The next verses, even Isaiah 9, verse 7, talk about David and his kingship, his rule, his power, his might. But they're looking for someone to come. And why this name? Wonderful counselor attributes to a specific counsel that goes for a king. Mighty God is to say this is no no just ordinary human. This is God himself of strength. He's a warrior. So why everlasting father? Why father? Well, the word father here attributes to a specific kind of type. In fact, John Calvin wrote about these names, and one of the things he said is that these aren't titles, but even though they're strange, they're adapted to the the case at hand. John Calvin, a theologian, who said, they're for the time. They're for specifically that moment. And if you were someone in that moment reading this, you wouldn't read father as just parenthood or lineage. Father actually was attributed throughout the scriptures to one who was a king, It actually was attributed to the kingship itself. In fact, there are times in the Bible when you read about David, even when he's on the run uh, from King Saul, that he'll call Saul a father, even though he's a king. The title father was attributed not as, again, a parentage, but as a king. And the kings of Israel were seen as those who would care, protect, provide safety, love the people of Israel, like a shepherd does. That was the whole point, the character of that. Now, that's not too far of a cry, and I mentioned this a little bit uh, two weeks ago uh, about our founding fathers. You know, we attribute to our own country the name of, hey, we have the founding fathers of our nation. We use that, that word, that title in that way. No, they're not necessarily our fathers, but we stand on their shoulders, right? One of the things, if you go to the Capitol uh, in D.C., you'll, you'd notice that George Washington himself specifically is, is heralded as one of those major ones. And at, at times, even as uh, many of the, the tour guides will tell you, uh, were wanting the, him to be deified. <laughs> uh, there are paintings on the rotunda of him that you kind of look at and you go, gosh, this looks like something out of the Sistine Chapel. Um, below, two stories below, there's actually an empty uh, tomb where they wanted to bury his body and create a glass floor so when you walked in, you could see him down below. So you'd have him above and below, and he refused to do that uh, in his writings. He wanted to be buried elsewhere. 
But even us, as we understand what it means to have a founding father, this is the idea of what they were talking about. With them, to have a father, to have an everlasting father, a king, as we talked about counselor and mighty God, that are driving to a warrior, a, a strong person, who would take the government on their shoulders, as it says. Who can take their government on their shoulders? So much to bear, so much to hold, so much to carry. It can't be just a mere human being. Many have asked, is this Hezekiah? Is this one of the good kings that comes following this? And, and, and over and over you see that they cannot bear that weight. You even see this a little bit in the New Testament. When Jesus is on the scene, especially in the book of John, and those are the narrative accounts. Again, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the, the narrative accounts of Jesus himself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see his life. And that's what we sing from, the Advent, first Advent of what we, we talk about, right? In John, there's moments, and it happens a couple times where the peoples recognize Jesus is this powerful figure. And he begins to bear the name of the Messiah, these four names begin to come into play in the way that he lives out his life. And they say to him, hey, take up the cross. We want you to be king over us. And Jesus refuses to take the crown. He refuses over and over. In fact, you may remember when he is on trial, they ask him, are you the, are you the king of the Jews? He's like, well, is as you say. He doesn't answer that necessarily, but what he always retorts with is, my kingdom is not of this world. He wants them to understand it's not about just this one earthly kingdom. It's not about me coming and just fixing the moments in that first century and making sure everything goes back because that's what they wanted. Jesus flipped everything on its end because he was a king like no other. You see that in Easter, when, when Jesus rides in on a donkey, what they recognize often is to say, wait, here comes the king. But only maybe a few years before that, a man named Judas Maccabeus rode in on a horse with a sword claiming that he would free Israel. And that is the kind of king they're thinking of. The kind that would come and free Israel. And yet here comes Jesus in a very different posture, as a king, as a father, as one who shepherds his people over and over. And yet what happens to us, what happens in this kingship is we can tend to go, oh yeah, his, king, his kingdom is not of this world and, and Advent is such a sweet, like sentimental time. It's such a, a precious, warm moment. But is he really king? Like, do you realize we walk around all the time singing, and we're going to sing it at the end of the service, about Jesus, the newborn king. Like, those are our favorite Christmas songs. <laughs> and yet we're singing of a king, and yet is he king? Does he bear that weight in our lives? When we pray even the Lord's Prayer, and it may be something that some of us in this room even have memorized, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do we realize that when we're praying thy kingdom come, we're also praying my kingdom go. 
I was listening to a podcast with some uh, gentlemen from the UK, some pastors from the United Kingdom, and one of the things that was so interesting to hear them talk about was how uh, America is coming behind them and, and moving uh, quickly culturally in the way that we approach it. But he said, you know, Christianity in its kingdomship has become somewhat of the white noise, almost like the kingship of the UK, <laughs> the royalty of the UK. It's the monarchy there is a part of it. It's in the background, but sometimes when it's talked about, people just kind of drift off. Maybe something we're interested in, we love to read about it, and people, we love to do stuff where it's like, oh, the royalty. But is it really a monarchy? Is it really a kingship? You know, when, when they read this, they wanted, what they were longing for was a father to come, an everlasting king, a king who would come and make things right. And the, the father part, why not just call it everlasting king? Well, the reason is, is because the father portion wasn't just about a job title. It was about a character, his character and love for them. Because in the Bible, some of the, the greatest kings were terrible fathers. <laughs> Have you ever thought about this before? Solomon, David, some of the greatest kings in here that are listed were incredible kings. They were horrible parents. That should actually encourage us. Solomon had so many children that we don't even know if he got to see, his children even got to visit him, even in a year. David was constantly in, in odds with his children, some trying to take his own life. They ran the kingdom well, but they ran their families terribly. What kind of father are we looking for? What, what does this mean? We look down in Psalm 103 and we see in this psalm about the father that, that this is describing. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you think about it for a second, what kind of father can do that? I mean, I don't know about you, but most of the time when we do confession, my sin is so close to me and so real in my face. And even if, it, if you're here and maybe you do confession sometimes, but you confess the same thing over and over again every week. But sometimes it feels like it's a lot more real than Jesus because it's something that you actually struggle with all the time. What is this king supposed to do? What is the character of this king? The character of this king is a father who, look, in the height and width, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What kind of a father can do that? can remove those things that are so close to you that you feel so real, so far apart. Think about it for a minute. What is that dynamic that he's saying? How far apart is the east from the west? For you flat earth people in here, how far is the east from the west? Keeps going, doesn't it? Even if it's, it is around earth. East is from the west. It keeps going, it's infinite. Who can do that? 
Who can actually take the things that you think and believe and feel and bully you over and over in your sin and take it that far apart from you? And not just away from you, but infinitely away from you. Eternally away from you. Only a father who is everlasting. Only one that can bear the weight of your sin and cast it so far from you, you can't even imagine. Let's ask this. For the people of Israel to think about this, what informs their view of life? Is it the eternal things or the temporal things? Is it the everlasting things? Or is it the things that are circumstantial that happen right away? Why would this father need to be everlasting? Why do we need a father who's everlasting? Because we live in the state of the temporal. We are constantly in the tyranny of the urgent. And what if our father wasn't just one who, you know, tried to give us good things, but was so powerful, so strong, they could pull our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, eternally, and our character is wrapped up in the character of this king, that the eternal, the everlasting informs the temporal, that what you believe, as C.S. Lewis said, what informs you of how to live this world is the next one. What if that is this king? See, that's what Isaiah's writing under. Isaiah's writing about a father, but an everlasting one, because they know they're living in a split kingdom. And they're thinking about the days, and it's not just them looking back, if we could go back to David, like some sort of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, like if we could just go back and have David again, you know? It's not them like hoping for a good moment in the past. They remember actually a promise that was given long before. In an Old Testament book, 2 Samuel chapter seven, when David was promised by God that his throne would be established forever. But you know what they see? All they see are two kingdoms that are about to collapse and be destroyed by a giant superpower named Assyria. They're circumstances. And they ask the question, how is this eternal? How can you keep us? How can you do this? You see, it's highlighted here. The promise given to David is coming forth. It doesn't go away. And after a, a series of what you can read in this passages and the prophets of the good and bad kings, you can see a totally failed picture of what the kingship should have been. And this king is going to do what the others couldn't. Quality character forever of the way that he loves his people. And isn't that what we want? Man, I don't know about you, but I think you and I brush up against the eternal a lot more than we admit. And we really want it. I'll tell you one moment for me. 
is after we were able to move back into our house after years of uh, being out of it from a, a major catastrophe, opening up boxes that were two, two and a half years removed from that moment, particularly with my children's names on them, and to see books and clothes and pictures and things that they used to play with all the time and to be in a moment where I just longed for the eternal. Time like that. And yet, what was I doing in the moment? It stopped me. It forced me to, to recognize I'm in a moment of time, but yet, God, I long for more. Isn't this what even brought C.S. Lewis, that great author, to Christianity? He was not a Christian, and what brought him to faith was actually the fact that he couldn't hold on to joy. It's like going to your favorite concert, and you hear a song, and you're like, this is the greatest song, and it ends, and you don't want to walk out. It's like seeing a sunset, and we have had many beautiful sunsets the last few weeks. I don't know if you've even noticed. They've been gorgeous. But you sit there, and if you watch a sunset, and you go, man, the earth is turning a lot faster than I realized, and the clouds and the colors change really quickly. It's things that you try and hold and grasp, and they just slip through your fingers. And C.S. Lewis thought, man, this is pointing to something that lasts. Even Aristotle, the great philosopher, believed that there had to be what was called an unmoved mover with everything changing around him and all the pontificating in questions. There had to be an unmoved mover. Who is that everlasting king? Who could that be? I read a, a, a great phrase from uh, a guy named Paul Tripp who called this eternal amnesia. How quickly we forget we're creatures that are made for the eternal and focus so briefly here on the temporal. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't live in the here and now, but how does the eternal inform how we live in the temporal? I think this table says it all. I don't know if you've thought about it <clears throat> before, ever. When you come to this table, you're actually brushing up against the eternal every single week. You're brushing up against something that la has lasted, not just for centuries because it's some sort of tradition. You're actually brushing up against something much bigger than that. You're brushing up against a king who laid his own life down to bring you close to himself, to make you a daughter and a son forever. And you get to brush up against, you get to taste it because it's a taste of what's to come. And I think it's incredible that Jesus set this table this way so that you and I could have, what, an actual temporal end time tangible, physical taste of what it's gonna be like. It's a morsel of a feast that we're gonna be a part of. And it's a beautiful display of something that, that shows his character. 
If there are any eulogy virtues to be had, they are all set here. (laughs) The one who not only died, but what did he do? He rose again. And if he beat the one thing that causes all of us to be afraid of the difference between the eternal and our time here, what is that? Death. Isn't that the question? Who can beat the one thing? Jesus can. You know, how do you live in between the Advent? We're celebrating the first one. That's what Christmas is, the first arrival. You may, uh, may or may not remember, every time we talk about this table, we're, we're talking about the first arrival, but we're also looking forward to the next. How do you live in between that time? You can't do it on your own. You can only do it in the arms of your eternal father. And what did he say in here? In Psalm 103, listen to what he says, verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting is the Lord's love with those who fear him. Everlasting to everlasting. What lasts? His love. It even says right before that, the life of mortals is like grass, like flowers of the field. The wind blows over, but what lasts? His love set on you. And if it is set on you, and you taste and see, you know it's true. This one has come and conquered the greatest foe ever, death itself. In a moment, we're gonna sing a hymn together called The First Noel. You've probably sung it a million times or listened to it. Probably have it on your playlist. If you're like me, every time I get in the car, I have Christmas music going right now. It's just been so sweet for me. But the first Noel, the very last stanza we're gonna sing, listen to this. It says this, then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught and with his blood mankind hath bought. Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the king of Israel. This is the one we sing to. This is the joy and reality of Christmas. Let's stand together.